Well, last week, um, we focused on the creation stories within Sefer Breshit, within Genesis, and I tried to describe a, a scheme uh, which I thought was useful towards an understanding of the different creation stories and their relationship to each other. Uh, this evening, I'd rather, I prefer to speak this evening to continue and to discuss not the Genesis stories of Genesis, but the Genesis stories of the book of Exodus. Not all of them, which would be a daunting task, but to focus on two or three central elements of the creation narrative as it's told, as it appears in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, of course, begins, the very first chapter begins by telling us about the birth of a nation. Jacob came down with his family to the land of Egypt, we are told, in the beginning of the book of Exodus, and quickly becomes a nation. And the Torah describes the phenomenal growth in language drawn from the beginning of the Torah. For example, in verse number 7, Uvnei Yisrael paru vayishritzu vayirbu vayatzmu bimod maod vatimoleya aretz otam. Most of that language is drawn either from the first chapter of Genesis or from the story of Noah's recreation of the world. And then when we come to chapter 2, which tells us of the birth of Moses, that chapter begins with vayelech ishmi beit levi vayikachet bat levi a man from the tribe of Le- Levi marries a woman from the tribe of Levi, and uh, they have a child, Vatar HaEisha Vateret Bein, Vatero Toki Tovu. When she saw he was Tov, uh, she decided to hide him for three months. And of course, Rashi points out that the language of Kitov is a language taken from the very beginning of the Torah, the first created thing, the light, is Tov. Vayar Elohim Ar Kitov, and not only that, as the story unfolds, this little child, who is Tov, is then placed inside an ark, Tevat Gome. So we have in the very second chapter of the book, which speaks of the birth of Moses, language drawn both from the initial creation story of chapter 1, the creation of the world, Shemayim Va'aretz, and the recreation of the world in the story of Noah. Even more interesting, and of course the Midrash, and many Midrashim note this, in our more recent times, Buber wrote about this, Necham Levowitz collected a lot of his work, that the very end of the book of, Gen- of, of Exodus, which describes the building of the, the Mishkan, that this very description itself of the tabernacle is essentially also drawn from the creation narratives that we find in the beginning of the Torah that, for example, the Mishkan has as its central vessel the Ark, and hovering above the Ark are the Kruvim, the cherubs, which we also find in the story of Eden. There they block the path back. We have the Shabbat adjoining the building of the tabernacle, both in the command to build it in chapter 31, and in the actual building in chapter 35. We have the term Mulacha, essentially the key term used for the work of the building the Mishkan, as opposed to the term Avodah, which appears in the beginning of Exodus. The work for the Mishkan is described as Melacha. 
And the culmination, the description of how the Mishkan is built, we have the, the term Vayichawetamracha, we have Moses blessing it and, and the sanctifying and blessing and culminating. To make a long story short, I'm, I'm being very uh, circumspect here, containing it. Of course, there's much more here, but it's quite obvious to the student of the Torah that the Mishkan essentially, that the sacred space of the Mishkan, is essentially written with an eye towards the creation stories in the beginning of the Torah. In other words, that the culmination of the book of Exodus, which is the building of the tabernacle, not only completes the description in Exodus of the Exodus story, which begins with Avodah for Pharaoh, with a Pharaoh who refuses to give time off, refuses, in his own words, to give a Shabbat, whose work has no purpose, purposeless work, and the end of the book of Exodus describes mulacha as opposed to avodah, voluntary work as opposed to forced labor, the key word being nedivlev, nedivim, nedava. And, of course, the Shabbat is part and parcel of the Mishkan. In short, the purposeful work of the Mishkan, the Mulechet Machshevet, appropriately completes the discrete book of Exodus, but it also caps the story which begins with creation, with the beginning of the Torah, with the creation of the world, which then segues into, at the end of the book of Exodus, the creation of a small world in which the human being and God partner to build the sacred space. So we have a book, in short, the book of Exodus, which begins with creation language and concludes with creation language, and therefore, the student of the Torah surmises that probably somewhere in the middle of the book we also have creation themes that would be perfectly logical and of course as we'll see shortly is very much uh, correct again I can't focus on all of the creation uh, stories of Exodus but I'd like to focus on a couple before I do that I simply wanted to point out that the book of Exodus itself these 40 chapters can very neatly be divided into two parts. The first part describes the suffering in Egypt, the exodus from Egypt, the leaving Egypt behind, and that is completed, that section of the book of Exodus, part one, is completed in chapter uh, 15 with the crossing of the sea. And what marks its completion is the song of the sea. A song that ends with a call for the temple, describes a kind of imagined temple, in the words of the Torah, Mikdash Adonai Konenu Yadecha, and speaks of God's res- residing in the temple forever, Adonai Yimroch Yoram Va'ed. That ends part one. That ends the experience in Mitzrayim. One of the functions of poetry, or song in general, is to mark time. So that part of the story is over. And now we begin part two, the journey through the desert, which begins after the Song of the Sea, beginning in the end of chapter 15. And that section ends with the end of the book, which also ends with the temple, which ends with the Mishkan. I'd like to begin this evening as a point of departure by reminding ourselves of one of the things that Casuto said in his great work on Genesis. And what Kasuto said, 
And last week I took this in a different direction. But what Casuto argued was that the f- first description of creation in the Torah is a polemic against other descriptions of creation that were current in the ancient Near East, where in the beginning of time there is an epic struggle between various forces, typically a supreme being and the gods of the deep, whether it's Tahom or Tiamat or Tanin or whether it's Yam, it's the sea god, and there's a great struggle. And after the great struggle, a god emerges victorious. But not that the other gods have been eliminated. They've been suppressed, but not eliminated. And Kasuto's point is that the Torah in the first chapter wages war against that conception. An example that he gives is the Torah's singling out, because typically in the creation narratives, things are not singled out. But singling out, on the fifth day, that God created the great, serpents, the great Tanin, the great sea monster. And Kasuto argued that the Torah's singling out the sea monster, the Tanin, is there to counter the other stories in which the Tanin, the sea monsters, etc., do battle. Over here, says Kasuto, there's no battle. That's what he says. Last week I argued that, whereas we can accept that as an important point, but the Torah had something additional in mind, not merely to combat the Canaanite myths, but to identify the Tanin of chapter 1 with the serpent, with the Nachash of the second creation story. That the Nachash does war, I argued, not only against the human being, but primarily against God. The Nachash is upset if one reads the two creation stories together, as I argue they should be read. The better reading is to read them together. That the Torah told us at the end of chapter 1, that God said in two verses, two of the five verses addressed to the human, is that you humans can eat not just plants, but also eat fruit. The animals can't have any fruits. They only have the vegetation. The snake appears in the second story and says to the woman, what, did God say you, you, that you can't eat any of the trees? Of course, he's talking about himself. And that the attack, that the snake, who sees himself as more than just another animal, after all, he's, he's more wise or more clever than the animals. His, his goal, his mission, is to defeat not just the human, but to defeat God's plan. God's plan being in the second creation account, the creation of a sacred space in which God and, and, and human can, can share. And at the end of the day, the snake wins, because the human is banished from God's sacred space, never to return. So I'd like to begin this evening with the following observation. Kasutu, of course, argued that whereas chapter 1 of the Torah combats this other way of seeing creation, of seeing existence, Kasutu argued that elsewhere in the Bible, this resurfaces in many of the poetic sections of the Bible. In the Psalms, in Eov, there are references, poetic references, to this other account in which there was a struggle in the beginning of time between Yam and Tanin, between Tahom, perhaps, and the Supreme God. Now, I would begin this evening with the following postulate, and that is that where it may be true that the first chapter of the Torah describes a perfectly ordered world, 
and a world in which God creates with no resistance and without effort. That's the creation idea of Genesis chapter 1. But the book of Exodus contains within it a different idea. Because after all, in the book of Exodus, there is a struggle between gods. At least, that's what God says. God says to Moshe that the purpose, or one of the objectives of the Exodus story, the ten plagues, is to do battle against the gods of, of the Egyptian. And not only that, when Moses is sent more than once to speak to Pharaoh, each time, there's a purpose for the, for the plagues that are to come. Roman teida, in order that you know, the last of which, before the seventh plague is, there is no God like me. Enkomoni, no God like me. There may be other deities, other powers in this world, but none like me, says God. So whereas the book of Genesis, at least chapter 1 of Genesis, suggests one force, one God, no resistance, that's not the way the book of Exodus presents it, at least through the, through the medium of the ten plagues. Now, at the end of the day, of course, the Egyptian armies are sunk into the sea in the 15th chapter, Song of the Sea. But what's interesting about the Song of the Sea is that the Song of the Sea seems to recall another battle. The song, while describing the drowning of the Egyptian army, the language of the Song of the Sea suggests that what is being recalled is a mythic battle. The term Tahom, for example, appears more than once. The term Yam appears several times in the song, and towards the end of the song, in verse number 19 of chapter 15, Kivosus parol brichbol v'farashav bayam, v'yashiv adonai alayhem et mei hayam, uvenei Yisrael hochu bayabasha betoch hayam. The triple use of Yam, no doubt, is recalling a different struggle, where there was a battle in the beginning of time. And after all, as it says in the Torah, the purpose of all this is to demonstrate that the God of Israel is the most powerful of all gods. In Kamoni, a phrase that is, finds an echo in the Song of the Sea, namely, whose plain meaning clearly is who is like you amongst the other gods, who is like you. Nedar Bakodesh. At the end of this battle, this great battle, where the God of Israel demonstrates supremacy, the song calls for an imagined temple that God's own hands will uh, create, will build. To the aim of a titaim of a harnachalatcha, machon Adonai, Mikdash Adonai Konanu Yadecha. We imagine a temple whose hands God will build and where God will reign supreme as king forever. Adonai Yimloch Yolam Va'ed. And prior to this imagined temple, the song informs us that the nations of the world tremble when they see or hear what happened at the sea. In fact, it's interesting to note that in the Song of the Sea, which marks the first half of the book of Exodus, seven different terms are used to describe the fear of the world. Shamu amim yegazun, 
Chilachaz Yoshve Pulashet, Oz Nivalu Alufei Edom, Elema Rav Yochazem Urad, Nomogu Ko Yoshve Kanan, Tipo Alehem Mosav Afachad. Seven terms to describe how the world is trembling because they hear, or they imagine what happens at the sea where God reigns supreme, not only against Mitzrayim, but the song recalls a mythic battle. That's the end of the first part of the book of Exodus, and then Israel starts to walk through the desert. And then we do, we do very well in the desert. We do a lot of complaining, first about the water, then about the food, then again about the water. And the last time, the last complaint about the water, the second complaint about the water, takes place at Rafidim, which is also called Masa Umriva. And the Torah says in chapter 17, in verse number 7, that they named the place Masa Umriva, quarrel, because Ariv b'nei Yisrael v'yanasotam et Adonai le'mar, hayesh Adonai b'kirbeinu imayin, because there they questioned and tested God, saying, is God in our midst or not? Is God b'kirbeinu imayin? And then we have the next verse. Vayavo Amalek, and Amalek comes. And Amalek attacks. And Amalek attacks Israel at a moment of weakness, spiritual weakness. And it's unclear, the Torah says, whether Israel will actually survive the attack. Because when Moses' hands are raised up, the Gavar Yisrael. But when Moses' hands are, are placed down, when they're let down, and Moses himself standing on the top of the mountain while Joshua conducts the war is incapable of keeping his own hands up. He requires the help of two people, his brother Aaron and Chur. They sustain his hands until nightfall. And Joshua, the general, who was told to gather the troops, troops weakens Amorek by the sword. At which point, God speaks to Moshe and instructs Moshe to write down as a memory in a book, Zikaron Basefer, I will obliterate Amorek from under the heavens. Moses builds an altar, he names it Adonai Nisi, and he says, God swears, God's hand is on the throne. Presumably it's, a, it's an oath. A war against Amalek in every generation. Now when one juxtaposes the two stories, namely, the story of Amalek and the story of the exodus from Egypt, in particular, the song of the sea, what's interesting is that one realizes that the two are deeply connected. The Song of the Sea speaks of the nations of the world trembling. Seven different terms. Talks about God destroying God's enemies, not just the Egyptians, but recalls the great victory of, the, of God against other forces. Tahom, Yam. And at the end of the Song of the Sea, it describes a temple in which God will reign forever. Adonai Yimroch Yolam Va'ed. The, the, the entire world is impressed and trembles in the presence of this God, except for one nation who doesn't tremble at all. 
who comes and attacks and apparently almost wins. And furthermore, even when they don't win, they're not truly defeated. Because at the end of the, end of the section, we are told that there's a war of God against Amalek, Midar Dar, in every generation. Notice, by the way, Milchamar Hashem, Kiyad al Milchamar Hashem Bamalek Midar Dar. Notice how the Chumash suddenly moves from pose to a kind of mythic poetry. Kiyad al Milchamar, because it echoes the song. It's not just now, it's forever. And interesting is that the enemy in this story, Amalek, is not presented by the Torah, despite the fact that they attack Israel, is not presented here in the Torah as, as Israel's enemy. Not at all. It's a, it's a battle against, God's battle against Amalek in every generation. So what Amalek represents then, one might say is, piece of creation that is none, not under God's control. Because in this creation description, it's not about the God who creates a world with no resistance. The Song of the Sea recalled a different creation, suppressed typically in other parts of the Torah, certainly not present in Genesis chapter 1. No matter how one reads it, it's not there. Even if you see Tahom and Tohu as chaos. But Genesis 1 is not about the chaos. Genesis 1 is about the perfect ordering. But in the Song of the Sea is different. There we recall a struggle. And what the Torah is suggesting then, that Amalek, what Amalek represents, is the part of creation, the forces of creation, not yet under God's control. That's the main focus. Of course, there's a second element to the story, and that is, at the end of the day, Amalek attacks not God directly, which is not possible. Amalek attacks Israel. But Amalek's purpose then, if we read the two stories as juxtaposed, Amalek's purpose is to prevent what the Torah describes in chapter 15, namely, the creation of God's space, or in the words of the Torah, the Migdash. Amalek, Amalek doesn't want you to, to the, the human being, in this case Israel, to arrive in God's temple. Amalek wants to... Wants, wants to was to prevent the sacred space from being built. It recalls for us, of course, the very beginning of the Torah, the story of this Nachash. Not the Tanin. The Tanin, you can't attack God directly, but you can attack God a different way. You can defeat God's plan. God's plan in the second creation account was to create a sacred space. The snake subverts that plan, and the human being is banished from the sacred space and sets out to find an kind of alternative, an alternate sacred space. Now, what I wanted to talk about this evening, this is by way of introduction. Now, here's what I wanted to talk about this evening, and I think it's extraordinarily interesting. And I can't fully, time will not allow a full description of what I want to stake out. And sometimes we can't prove every single piece of a theory but our intuition tells us that we're on the right track. And I, in, in that spirit, I offer the following thought about the construction of the book of Exodus. You know, the story of the snake is very interesting. I mean, the point I emphasized last week about this Nachash is that he is the other side of the, of the Tanin. He's, he, he attacks not God directly, but God's stewards, the, the Adam and his, and his wife, the Ishvi Isha, in the second creation account. 
There's something else interesting about the snake, and that is when the snake speaks to the woman about this tree that she and he are not permitted to eat, the Torah says, when the snake says, listen, I heard you can't eat any of the fruit. Oh no, we can have all the fruit, just the stuff in the middle of the garden. Because we, we, we can't even touch it, we can't hurt it, we can't damage it. It's a little but we can't damage it, lest we die. You're not going to die, says the snake. It's not that. It's God doesn't want you to eat it, because if you do eat it, you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. And the next verse says, And the woman saw the fruit was good, and it was a tavala inayim, desirous for the eyes, and pleasurable to give you wisdom. And, she, so, and then she takes of it, and she gives her husband as well. But even before she takes of it, the Torah goes out of its way to emphasize what she is seeing. Before she eats of it, she already imagines this tree as not just good, but nechmad, lahaskil, ta'avala inayim. And what I would suggest is that what the Torah is doing in the description is setting the stage for a reading of the story of the Nachash, in which the Nachash is not simply something external to myself, but the Nachash is within me. Nachash is my imagination. Suddenly, even before she takes of it, she has already imagined it as being much more than it is. And in that spirit, I would suggest that what the book of Exodus does is it uses the story of Amalek to tell another story, or in telling another story. And the story that I'm referring to is the central story of the book of Exodus, perhaps the central story of the Torah. And that is the story of the golden calf. The story of the golden calf, I argue, is a product, or is built around, two creation stories in the book of, in the, in the book of, of Genesis. The story of the golden calf is this. Moses leaves to bring down the tablets and to receive instruction about building the Mishkan. He leaves behind him Aaron and Hur. And in Moses' absence, when he doesn't come back in the eyes of the people at the appropriate time, they become nervous, they go to Aaron, they bully him, and they uh, instruct him to build a, a, a golden calf. And next morning, they're up bright and early in the morning, uh, worshipping the calf, rejoicing, whatever. Uh, Moses, meanwhile, is on the mountain, and God tells Moses, when he's still on the mountain, what has happened with the golden calf, and God threatens to destroy the people. He makes an offer to Moses in the 32nd chapter of the book of Exodus, in this translation on page 184, God said to Moshe, listen, let me, leave me alone, let me destroy them, I'll make you a nation. At which point Moses prays for the people. And Moses successfully, in these verses, beginning with Vayichal Moshe, in verse number 11, Moshe succeeds in getting God to change God's mind, <coughs> in the first stage of the story, God relents of the evil God thought to do to God's people. And now the story begins. Okay, God has agreed not to destroy them, 
But the question in the Torah is, but what's to be with these people? So Moshe heads down the mountain in verse number 15. And it's these verses that I wanted to look at this evening. Vayifen vayered Moshe menahar, ushnei luchot ha'idut biyado, luchot kituvim mishnei evrehem, mizeh umizeh heim kituvim. Tablets, Moses goes down the mountain with the tablets. We are told the writing was on both sides. From this side and that side. Then the Torah adds, and the tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablet. Meanwhile, apparently Moses' disciple Joshua, General Joshua, has been waiting faithfully for Moses at the foot of the mountain. And Joshua hears the cry of the camp. Vayishma Yoshua et kola ambureo. Vayomel Moshe kol milchama b'machane. And the next verse is Vayomer. He said, unclear who the he is. Most of the commentaries take it to be Moses answered him. No, no. En kol anot kvurav yein kol anot chalusha. It's not the cry of the of the powerful ones, the victors, nor is it the cry of the weak ones. Kol anot anochi shomeya. I hear a cry perhaps a tortured cry. Now, when you read this description, and what's striking is that right away the story of Moses descending the mountain recalls for us the story of Amalek in chapter 17. The story begins by telling us when Moses goes down the mountain, he carries the tablets which are written on both sides, Mizeh u Mizeh. And the reader of the Torah, of course, Mizeh Mizeh, recalls similar language in chapter 17. When Moses was on the mountain and his hands were weak, we are told that his hands had to be supported by Aaron and Hur. Mizeh Echad Mizeh Echad. This one on one side and this one on the other. In that story, Moses instructed Joshua in chapter 17 Joshua go out and do war against Amalek. Joshua's role is defined as, 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 as a general. He, right? He fights a war. Here too, the Joshua who waits below, when he hears the sounds from the, from the, from the camp, story of the golden calf, interprets it as a sound of war. Not only that, but in the battle against Amalek, we are told that when Moses would raise his hands up, v'gavar Yisrael, and when his hand was put down, v'gavar Amalek, and at the end of the paragraph we're told, v'yachalosh Yoshua et Amalek v'yet Amalek that Joshua succeeded at the end of weakening Amalek, v'yachalosh. And the Torah here maintains both, both terms. Joshua says, or Moses says to Joshua, en kol anot givura v'yen kol anot chalusha. Both the term Gvura and Chalusha are presumably coming straight out of the Amalek story. And whereas in the first story, of course, it's Aaron and Hur who support Moses. In the second story, Hur disappears altogether. The Midrash claims he was killed, but he disappears. And Aaron, of course, is the one who builds the golden calf in the first place. And Moses confronts him. What did you do? So Aaron has his excuse. I threw the... So Moses takes action. Now before we get to the action that Moses takes, what do we make of this, what do we make of the, of the, of the language, of the description of Moses going down the mountain 
that the language is drawn from the story of Amalek. So the first point is that in the story of Amalek, it's not Moses alone who fights Amalek. Moses is on top of the mountain, perhaps praying. He has Aaron and Hur to, to assist him. And he has Joshua below fighting. In the story of the golden calf, though, Hur disappears. Aaron's on the wrong side, apparently. Joshua, the faithful disciple, understands nothing. He hears, as generals hear, he hears the, through his own lens, the prism of a general. He hears the sound of war. He doesn't hear the real sound. He doesn't, Moses and Joshua aren't hearing the, any, the same thing. What does Moses have when he comes down the mountain? He doesn't have Joshua. He doesn't have Aaron. He doesn't have Hur. He has one thing that could sustain him. He has the tablets. He has God's teachings. He has the, he has the Torah. Mizeh or Mizeh. But of course, as the story unfolds, when Moses comes down and sees what's happening, and that's the point of the Torah, even that he's forced to, 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 to relinquish. Moses smashes, Moses breaks the tablets when he sees what is happening. He understands, of course, that the impossibility of giving the, these tablets to the people. Impossible. Because they're worshipping a golden calf. In a sense, they've already been broken. And Moses breaks the tablets. The significance of breaking the tablets and why the Torah emphasizes they are the work of God. Even though it said it early, it repeats it. These tablets are the work of God. And why does the Torah emphasize that? For one reason. Because everything else in the Mishkan can be built by, by human ingenuity. Pitsalo and his helpers are excellent architects. They can build the whole tabernacle. There's one thing they can't build. They can't build the ark. They can't build the tablets. Because the tablets are the work. When Moses breaks the tablets, he makes it impossible to build the tabernacle. The sacred space cannot be built, except if God give us another set of tablets. But we don't understand or can't even imagine why God would do such a thing. All we can see in front of us is people dancing around a golden calf. That's what Moses sees. Yes, Moses has achieved one thing. God has promised not to destroy them. That's true. But the question is, can these people live together with God? That's what the Mishkan's about, living in one space. Can we share a space? But the point here is, you see, that the use of the Amalek language is much deeper. Because what the Torah actually is saying, what, what is Amalek about? Amalek is about making it impossible to live in God's space. Amalek is, is the, the force that does not allow the human being and God to occupy one space. That's the story in the beginning of the Torah, and that's the juxtaposition of Amalek with Migdash Adonai Konen Yodecha. And now, the problem is that Amalek in this story is not some external Amalek, but the Amalek of the story over here is the people's own behaviors, the people's own fears and inhibitions. That's what this story is about. How do you deal with this? So Moses goes down the mountain, there's a civil war, and then Moses turns to God. Moses turns to God and Moses prays for the people. And Moses' prayer is, Vayoshev Moshe Adonai Vayomar, in verse 31, so Moses turns to God, listen, forgive them. And if not, 
Mechini nami sifracha asher katafta. If not, says Moses, im ayin, then blot me out from the book that you have written. Of course, the reader sees immediately in all three terms, im ayin, mechini nami sifracha asher katafta, how the Torah once again has, has co-opted the language that it mentions earlier in the Amalek story, which begins, of course, Amalek comes onto the scene in the first place when the people say, says the Torah, Hayesh Hashem Bekirbeinu Im Ayin Amalek. And in the story of Amalek, of course, what God promises to do is, and He instructs us to write it Basefer, write this down in a book, and Moses turns to God and tries to push God around, which doesn't work very well in the Torah. I think in general it's not a good idea. But here in particular, do it or else. Do it or else. If not, to which the divine response is, no, no. That's not going to work. You're not going to die for their sake. You're not going to, your death will not atone for the people. It doesn't work that way. No. We have to find a different plan. Go back to the people. Go back to them and say someday they have to pay, pay the price. And then we come to the beginning of the next chapter. And God said to Moses in chapter 33, Take these people and the people you took out of Egypt and bring them to the land that I promised to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And I'll send an angel in front of you. And I'll drive out the inhabitants. And you'll possess a land of milk and honey. But I will not go in your midst. Why not? I will not go in your midst. So what does that mean? You can possess the land. What does it mean, I will not go in your midst? You can have a land, milk and honey, have my best angel. But one thing you won't have, the Mishkan. That you can't have. You can possess the land, but you can't have a temple. That's low elah bekir b'cha. That's bekir b'cha. Of course, the Chumash is again recalling Hayesh Hashem bekir beinu imayin. So the issue then in the Torah is very simple. The issue is you can possess the land. Zavad chalavudvash. You can possess the, the, a sacred space, but you can't possess the sacred space. You can't possess. You can't have a mishkan. We can't be together. Because if we live together, I'm going to kill you. Because you're a stubborn people, an, an, an unrepentant people, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a demanding God. And the issue here in the story becomes clearly, can we live together? Or in the words of the Torah, can God live bikirbenu? And when the people hear this, the people hear this terrible news, we're told, by Yitabalu they mourn and they don't put on their, their, their jewelry, their ornaments. And God says to Moshe, say to the people, you're stubborn. If I go I'll destroy you. Keep the jewelry off. Let me figure out what to do about it. It's a very human picture of God. Sometimes people don't want to be reconciled. And you can talk to them forever in a day. It never works. It doesn't matter. <coughs> but sometimes people want to be reconciled. But they can't figure out how to do it. Then the third party can save the day. Sometimes it works that way. That's how the Torah presents it. God wants to reconcile with these people who are, who are crying, who are mourning, who are not putting on their jewelry. But God cannot figure out a way 
how God can be bekirbenu, how, how the Mishkan can be built, how the sacred space can be built. It's up to Moses to figure it out. Moses, of course, at the end succeeds. Because in chapter 34, after God reveals God's attributes of mercy, that happens in chapter 34 of the book of Exodus, and Moses, when God teaches Moses the attributes of mercy, so the Torah says, and Moses says in chapter 34, verse number 9, walk in our midst. And God agrees to do it. God gives Moses the second tablets, the second Ruchot, and the Mishkan is built. Now the question is, how did Moses achieve this? That's the question. How did Moses succeed? The answer would require a lot of careful study of these verses, but I wanted to make one or two significant points, I think, about the story. How Moses succeeds and how the Torah tells us the story. See, all reconciliations require a reconciliation on both sides. It's never one-sided. The people are mourning. The people are crying. The people are seeking God. That's from their perspective. But God's argument seems to be a good one. But if I dwell in their midst, they're going to anger me. If they anger me, I'm going to... Better to keep the distance. We can't occupy one space. And Moses' argument is that in order for this to work, it requires a, some kind of uh, conciliatory act even on God's part. Namely, that the God who dwells with the people cannot be the God in God's full panoply, but rather, specifically, a limited God in God's attributes of, of mercy. V'ashem Hashem kelrachum v'chanun erech hapayim v'ravchesed v'emet in, in these descriptions of God's mercies. And by the way, emet is also God's mercy. Another time I'll explain that. Chesed v'emet does not mean in truth. It doesn't mean that at all. It means true. It, it's, it's chesed shel emet, actually. Chesed v'emet in the Torah typically doesn't mean truth. Chastol v'amito doesn't mean truth. It means faithful kindness. Often kindness, not to just to me, but to my parents or grandparents. But it's, a, it's an extension of the kindness says Moses to God, you must, must and can dwell with them and must dwell with them in the aspect of, of, of your mercies. Then, even though perhaps they are nonetheless, you will go with them as a, as a merciful and a, and a forgiving God, that this aspect of God allows you to dwell with them. With, with, with that description of God, with that name of God, one might say, Torah calls the temple the place in which God's name is present. What name? Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun. So God's self-limitation is required, says the Torah, in order to allow them to, to dwell together, which of course God agrees, gives the tablets, the tabernacle is built, and God and the people occupy one space. But what I wanted to explain in terms of how this works is that the Torah, I think, has actually something else in mind over here in the story of the golden calf. And that is, 
that if you look at the language of the golden calf story, part of it is, as I said, it's a kind of internalizing of this, of this Amalek story. And Amalek is that which prevents God's temple from being built, God's space from being occupied. But here the Amalek is not represented as kind of external force. Here the Amalek is within us. We have to somehow overcome Amalek through our mourning, through our prayers, through our appeals to God and to God's mercy. And it has a successful outcome in the book of Exodus. What's interesting about the story of the golden calf is that it's a story in two parts. The first part has to do with God's desire to destroy Israel and to make a nation out of Moses. And that begins in chapter 32 by God saying to Moses, I've seen these people, they're very stubborn. Hanichali, Hanichu, leave me alone. Let my anger rage against them and I'll destroy them. I'll make you a nation. And Moses appeals to God, no, you can't do that. Rather, shuv mecharon apecha, please. Relent, turn away from your blazing anger. V'hinachem al haraliyamecha. Relent of the evil you think to do to your people. And the bottom line in part one is Vayinachem Hashem, that God relented of the evil that God had thought to do to, to God's people. That's the end of part one. The, the word that governs that part is the word Hinachem, Nunchet Mem. That's what governs that part. That still doesn't allow, that means God won't destroy Israel. But how does God dwell with Israel? And here we come to the second part of Moses' argument. The second part of Moses' argument is very simple. What Moses does in the book of Exodus, he constructs his own temple. He calls it the O.L. Moed, Moses' tents. And whoever wants to visit can travel to the tent which is outside the camp. That's what the Torah says. Moses, after Moses constructs this, temp, this tent outside the camp, this mishkan outside the camp, Moses turns to God. In chapter 33, verse number 12, these verses, and I'll translate them in a second, are exceedingly difficult. I want to just explain one line to explain what actually I think is going on. The first thing we notice, though, and this is not true only of these verses, but there's a word that it constantly is repeated in, in Moses' arguments with God. It's a little word which is played on constantly. And that's the word chen. Matzati chen b'yeinecha, matzati chen b'yeinecha, matzati chen b'yeinecha, v'yatai matzati chen b'yeinecha. Right? V'reiki amcha ha'goyazeh. Gam et ha'devazeh sh'adibarta ha'seh, ki matzata chen b'yeinai. Right? Hanichoti lach. 
Constant plays on the word chen. Now, what is Moses' argument, first of all? Because the text seems unintelligible. But Moses has a very simple argument, which is this. You're angry with the people. You can't dwell amongst the people. But me, you like. You like me, right? I love you. You're great. Right? You like me. Here's the, here's the only thing. I live with them. That's the point. I live with them. So if you like me, you want to be with me, you've got to be with them. That's the argument. It's very simple. To which God's answer is, this I also agree to. Why? And therefore, God is not so willing to do it. But God agrees to do it. It's not simple. Okay, I will show grace towards those to whom I show grace. And eventually, that segues into the attributes of mercy of Rachel and Bechanun. Now, what is the Torah playing off in the story? One thing. It's this. The Torah tells us in the beginning of Genesis that the world is created. First created, Shemayim Ve'eretz. Then the second creation story, which is the creation of the sacred space, the Garden of Eden. Then the world is destroyed. And then, before the world is destroyed, it is recreated. The person who represents the recreation of the world in the initial stages, of course, his name is Noah. Now, why is he called Noah to begin with? And what's interesting is, why? His father names him Noah. Not a no, actually. It's not because of Chain. No. <laughs> you would think so. And, 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 and Chain is in the story. But no. His father named him Noah, saying, This will cause a consolation. Yenachameinu. Right? Let's find that verse. This is a chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 29. Noah will provide a relief or a consolation. Noah, by the way, is born, as the commentaries point out, and you can check it out for yourself, it's actually true, right after Adam dies. Actually. Right after Adam dies. So the father says, maybe, maybe there's a ch- change over here, maybe Noah's birth will provide a consolation. But we're told the world is very corrupt, and God is, and God is re- relenting of the, of the creation. God is upset with God's creation. God is sorry. And God decides to destroy everything. However, says God. And now the last verse in Parshat Breshit. But Noach found Chain. Of course, Chain is an acronym, Noach and Chain. So what has the Torah done with Noach? There are two different terms used in conjunction with Noah. The first is Renachem. Renachem, that the Torah plays off, and God changes God's mind, which means in that instance to destroy. That's the first point. But the second is Renoach Matzachem. And of course, in the story of Noah and the ark, that term comes into play. Torah. plays on it. You can check it for yourself. You'll see it. What has the Torah done? The Torah in the book of Exodus has a very simple point. Because remember, at the beginning of Exodus, little Moses is placed inside the ark. That's not a small point. 
the Torah is delaying to later on to tell you the, the true significance. The significance is this, that Moses, unlike Noah, this is not a criticism on Noah. I think people have unfairly and actually implausibly condemned Noah. It's in the Medrash too, but it's not the Pshat of Chumash. Nowhere will you find in the Torah a condemnation of Noah. There's none. He does exactly what he's supposed to do, which is to build the ark as God has commanded him and enter into the ark. The term kasher tziva, Elohim et Noah, or Hashem et Noah, appears several times. There's no sense of Noah being, being criticized. When it comes to Abraham, when it comes to Moses, it's different. Because when it comes to Moses, God actually invites the prayer. Leave me alone, which only means one thing, don't leave me alone. If you, if you, if you don't say it, I will destroy them. That means speak. As God invited Abraham to pray. Can I hide from Abraham what I plan to do? That means pray. God never invited Noah to pray. It, sometimes you don't pray. It's no invitation for prayer. But in the case of Moses, it's an invitation. And the Torah tells us the story in two parts. In the first part, Moses pleads that the people survive. Even though God said to Moses, I'll destroy them and make you a nation. It sounds like a good offer. It's the offer that God made to Noah. Raid kishichet amcha, which is a Noah term. Why does God destroy the world in the Noah story? Kishchit kol basaret The Torah repeats that term, shishchit. The world has been corrupted. God says to Moses, okay, they're, they're, they're corrupt. I'll destroy them. And I'll make, let's start over again. I've done this once before. Let's start over again. But Noah refuses. Moses refuses. Moses steps into the breach and prays for us. That's part number one. But in part number two, it's something else. In part number two, he advocates for the people. He advocates for the people that the people be allowed to construct, not just survive, not just survival, but he advocates for the people. Here he speaks as Abraham's child, as a, as a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He advocates for sacred space. That's where the chain comes in. That's where the chain comes in. We, we can work this all out. We can figure out a way to live together. That's what God says, Moshe says to, to God. And it succeeds. In the case of Noah, it's also about building a space. Also, he builds the ark. Only the ark, the ark and the Mishkan have one thing in common. The definition of both of them is in terms of cubits. The ark is so this many cubits and that many cubits and this many cubits. But that space houses only Noah, his family, and his select few. But when Moses prays for the space, also in terms of cubits, but the space that Moses prays for is the space not to house himself, far from it. It's to house the people. So what the Torah has done is, in the, in the story of the golden calf, it's very interesting, is I think simultaneously to conscript two very different stories. The first is, it plays off the Amalek story, which is about the evil that exists in the world. It's about a world in which evil is a reality. That's Amalek. And then the Torah says, it's a reality out there, but it's also a reality in here. And describes the golden calf as the evil within ourselves. The evil, the doubts, the fears within ourselves that don't allow the temple to be built. Because at the end of the day, that's what the golden calf story is about. It's not about living and dying. They're going to live. But Moses goes down the mountain. It's not about survival. That's not the issue. It's a quality of life issue. Can God dwell amongst you or not? It's very simple. And that Moses, 
Unlike Noah, who wasn't invited to pray, Noah, Moses has the invitation to pray and seizes the moment to argue, not just take me instead of the people. That's not what he says. He takes, if you take me, you take them by definition, because I'm, I'm with them. What do you say? And it involves God's own self-contraction to do it. And God agrees to do it. And through the prayers, and through the people's crying, and the people's mourning, and through God's mercies, and through God's self-limitation, says the Torah, it is possible to construct the sacred space. And that's how the book of Exodus ends, with the construction of sacred space, which takes us back not just to Genesis chapter 1, but more importantly to Genesis chapter 2. I just wanted to conclude this evening before I take any comments or questions that, uh, as Rachel Friedman said in the beginning, we are sitting in a sacred space, a place where people are studying Torah. And, you know, I want to say something about sacred space. There, there are two kinds of sacred space. There's one kind of sacred space that you build when you are, when you are oblivious to what goes out in the real world. There's probably a value to that, too. There's another kind of sacred space that you build, which is the tr- kind we're trying to build here, which is very difficult. When you know all about the Nachash, and you know about, about what's in the world, and it's many, many problems, nonetheless, you affirm the possibility of, of building something special and holy and sacred. And in order to do that, you build a space which invites the world in, invites all people to the table, because we come to an understanding, this kind of a sacred space is so difficult to build. It involves all of our abilities, all of our thinking, and bringing people who are willing to respect the other, to sit around a table, to argue, to fight, to dialogue, to agree, to figure it all out. And that Torah is a real Torah. It's not some, some abstraction up in heaven. It's trying to figure out how we can understand what are our possibilities, and how to make them real, how to make them happen. That's actually a Torah that I believe in deeply. It's a Torah that Mady Katz believes in very deeply as one of my finest pupils. And it's a struggle. Because the Nachash is real. That's, that's the point in the, in, the, in the book of Exodus. Not just out there. It's everywhere. The world is an imperfect world. It's not, a, it's not the world of Genesis chapter 1 where everything is good and wonderful and beautiful. That's not the real world that we live in. We don't live in that world. And yet the Torah maintains, I think, despite Amalek, the external Amalek, and despite the Amalek within us, in our community, in our society, and in the world, it is possible. It's difficult, but possible. Through prayers, through courageous action, through taking maybe unpopular stands, as Moses does, he's by himself. One person. One person did it. There was no Aaron and no Hur and no Joshua and no tablets and nobody. And he turns it all around because he believes in something and he sticks to it and he's able to bring the other people on board and together, and to make the sacrifices, and together they build the Mishkan, which is the culmination, not just of the book of Exodus, but the culmination of a book that begins in Genesis, verse 1, chapter 1, the creation of the world, and at the end of Exodus this very special space in which God and humanity can both inhabit. We thank you. Okay. I'll take a couple of questions. Yes, please.
Right, I think the prayers of what Moshe represents in the story, I mean, the Torah presents it in extremely human terms. The God of, when God says to Moses, I want to help you, but I can't figure out how to do it, okay? Which is what God basically, and leaves it up to Moshe to figure out. I think the point of Moshe's prayer, first of all, is that Moshe's prayer involves his own, he's giving something up himself. It's not just talk, because Moses is given a very wonderful offer. Let's, let's, let's get rid of those bums. And me and you, we, we can work it out together. And Moses doesn't accept that offer. Not that God wants him to accept it. But the point is, he doesn't accept it. And I think the point of it is that it's not any one thing. It's not just that Moses prays. The Torah makes the point that when the people hear the bad news, what is the bad news? You possess a land, you have milk and honey, but no temple, that the people mourn. In that mourning, which they do spontaneously, according to most interpreters of the Torah, and I'm with them in that, I think that is the better reading, that they've already taken a step. They've already decided, because what is prayer about, among other things? It's figuring out what's really important, what really matters. The mattering map. You know the term, the mattering map? I think it was Rebecca Gold. The mat- what really matters? And the people have decided something very important. The temple matters to us. That's the point. So it's not just Moses. It's not just that it's working in concert, Moses and the people. Moses is a very good advocate for us. But he also makes the point that, the other point is that it's not just me and not just the people, but to work this out properly, this is the audacious piece, God must self-contract. God can only reside with, a, God in God's full panoply can't live, can, can function in this world. Because God's right. The moment they step out of line, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy them. So Moshe says, if you want it to work, if you want to construct a space in this world, maybe you have other worlds out there, but in this world, it's got to be with, with, with God's mercies. That is for sure. But God doesn't simply offer that. We have to work towards it. I think that's, that's the point I'm making about the Moshe's prayers. It, it's, it's, all, it's all part of a piece. God's role and Moshe's role and Israel's role and all that is all part of a piece. Yes? Right. I, I would say that's correct. I would not, it's, so, it's correct in terms of building a, a, a so-called structure, but it's, it's equally true in the book of Genesis in terms of building family. There I think it's forgiveness. I think even more than forgiveness, I would argue, is taking responsibility. As I said in my Genesis class the other day, the primal sin isn't so much eating the fruit, it's, it's, it's not taking responsibility afterwards. I think that, and the point of Genesis is at the end of the day, if you want to build anything, you've got to take responsibility. And that's what Judah does. That's what the family does. That's how the family gets constructed at, in the end of Genesis. And I would say the same thing is true in this idea of sacred space, which at the end of the day isn't so much about space. It's about the, it's about the, the various actors who, 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 who inhabit the space, that being God and Israel and, and all of us together, each one human being and, and, and the next. If you, if you want to make it work, there's got to be both a sense of a kind of honesty there. There's also got to be an, an understanding of oneself and of the other that we're all fallible. We all make mistakes. And that, you know, and it's trying to, I think, see the best in each other and, and trying to, to help each other move towards a common goal. Part of that is understanding what is the goal. C- clarification of goals is very central. 
And I think the Exodus story is a good point here because one might have said, when God said, you can have milk and honey, drive out the inhabitants, have a land, and not just that, my best angel is going to take you. But you can't have a temple. Well, you can't have everything. You know, you might have said that. But that's not what they say. So I think that's certainly true, that forgiveness and a compassion are essential towards building anything. Sacred space, community, or whatever. Yeah? Why doesn't God take the responsibility himself? What happened? God took the people out of Egypt. People would not have done that. Moses says, leave me alone. I don't want to do this. That's the Medrash. That's the Medrash. Right. That's, so that's the Medrash. The Medrash says that Moses turned to God and said, they, God said, they built a golden calf. And Moses says, what did they build it out of? Out of gold. How did they get the gold? Remember that back in Egypt, God says to, God says to Moses, make sure they take, tell them to take the gold. So the Medrash, of course, which is that other voice, it says, has Moses arguing exactly your point. But how did they get the gold in the first place? The gold that you forced them to take. But the answer to your question in terms of the simple reading is, I mean, there are different ways to read the text. But to me, I read it as God wants to allow Moses the opportunity to say what Moses has to say. And that sometimes, sometimes you step back from a situation to allow the other to speak. Beginning with the first question that God ever asked to Adam, which is Ayeka. God knows where Adam is. Some of the moderns don't think so, but I think God knows very well where Adam is. Ayeka means, tell me what happened. Tell me, son, what did you do? And had he said, you know what, I really messed up. It's totally my fault. We'd be in the Garden of Eden today, you know? But that's not what happened. The one that you gave me, the one you foisted on me, she did it, you know? So that's, God often steps back. That's the way, I, the story here, I think, is exactly that. Leave me alone and I'm going to destroy them. It can only mean don't leave me alone. Now, when it comes to Noah, God doesn't say to Noah, leave me alone. God has predetermined the way to destroy, which is why Noah's not praying is actually, in the simple reading of the text, not to be condemned. He does what he's told to do. He does as God commanded him. It's not a point for negotiation. Neither is the, 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 the binding of Isaac a point for negotiation. Why didn't Abraham pray? God doesn't want him to. That's why. That's, that's the, 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 and it's, how does Abraham know it? It's very simple. We always know it. If you have a child and, and, and your parent speaks to the child and says, don't do X, the kid always knows if you mean it. Right? That's the point. There's not... An, it's one of those non-questions that people like to ask. Why didn't Abraham pray? He prayed for Saddam. He's invited to pray for Saddam. Can I hide from Abraham? You do Tadaka and Mishpat. Abraham says, Hashofi Koharetz, Oyaseb Mishpat. There's an invitation to prayer. In the case of Noah, in the case of the Akedah, there's no invitation. That's, that's a simple reading of the text. Yes? Yes. Well, I don't think it's arbitrary, let's put it that way. I don't think the Chanotia Tashirachon may mean. I'll, you don't try to figure out what I'm doing. In other words, I don't think it's arbitrary in the sense necessary that there is no, God doesn't have a very good reason for what God does. I'd hate to think that's true, but, it, it's, but I think it is true that very often we can't presume to know God's reasons. 
That's my take on the Chanotiyat Asher Achon. The Talmud actually discusses that verse and has a couple of different opinions as to what that means. Okay, one more, yeah. Okay, so you're asking, what I said was something, what I, the point that I was making, what you're asking is along the lines of the Rambam, who says, obviously, he doesn't like the idea that she had no knowledge to begin with, that would contradict everything he believes in, so he raises the question, since the human being had already been commanded not to do X, obviously, the human being must have had an understanding that doing X is wrong, so what does it mean to gain knowledge through the eating of the fruit, if you already have knowledge? What is... That's the Rambam's question. But I wasn't dealing with that. I was, making a, I was making a different point about the snake, which is the claim that I was advancing, which feel free to, uh, to uh, reject if you wish, but the claim I was making is that the Torah goes out of its way to describe once the snake says to her, no, it's not about dying. It's about God doesn't want you to be like God. And then the Torah says, and the woman saw the tree was good, and it was de- de- desirous for the eyes, and nechmad haskil. the Torah is already, through her eyes, telling us what she's seeing, which is more than just what the trees are. In other words, the idea of, of Eve's imagination. In other words, she already is imagining much more than what is there, and that, my point is that what the snake then represents, if you think of it in terms of her imagination, it's what, it's what the Gemara calls the, uh, the, uh, the, the evil inclination, the Yetzirah. It's something within, within ourselves, that's my point. That there's something within ourselves which has all, all these kinds of imaginations, desires, or whatever, that one, I think, is, can legitimately read the snake as something within ourselves, as a kind of external representation of something within ourselves. And I'll tell you something else, that if one does read it that way, then the, the various Hasidic readings of the Torah, which read Amalek, as something within ourselves, to me carries, a, a good, a, carries some, some real weight. And my purpose this evening, one of the purposes was to argue that the Amalek story, in a sense, becomes internalized through the episode of the golden calf and that the, the commonalities of language suggest it. Okay, one more. Yeah. Well, first of all, the Torah doesn't say that he actually threw it in the fire and it came out as a calf. It says that's what he said happened. The Torah says exactly the opposite. The Torah says, He used an engraving tool. And actually, the Torah says something additional, and with this I'll conclude, even though it's not relevant to the general conversation. That is, just, What is the pshat? But it's interesting that... The Torah says that Moses saw Aaron and had made them wild. Ki fra'o aharon. Fra'o is written typically peresh ayin vav. But in that case, the Chumash maintained the kind of archaic hey. Peresh ayin hey, which was supposed Pharaoh. Now Pharaoh, of course, we know had, had his magicians, his chartumim. Chartumim. The term chartumim, apparently, I checked this out, comes from the word cheret which is the, to engrave, perhaps they wrote or whatever, or engrave things. In other words, the Torah is going out of its way to make a simple point, that Aaron's, Aaron's behavior in the golden calf, as constructor of the golden calf, 
is essentially plays the role of Pharaoh in the sense that if you if you make a, if you say about a golden calf, you took us out of Egypt. What does that mean? It means you're still there, and that's the point. The point about the golden calf episode. See, Exodus is two parts. The first part is leaving Egypt, physically. The second part is leaving it spiritually. Sometimes it's much more difficult to leave it spiritually than it is to leave it physically. Anyway, thank you very much. Okay. Right.